Hello and welcome to Word Up, a series of podcasts hosted by Oxford University Press with Helen Prince and guests. In this podcast, we talk about the word logic. So the etymology for that word starts from the 14th century, mid 14th century, and it meant a branch of philosophy that dealt with forms of thinking or the science of distinguishing true from false reasoning. The word itself stems from the Greek term logos, meaning to reason, and the word logistics also derives from that Greek stem, but logistics took longer to come into the English language, first passing into French as logistique, meaning the art of calculating. In 1846, we have the brilliantly useful phrase, a logic chopper, and it meant a person who uses confusing arguments. So this morning, we are talking with a really fascinating colleague who is an RE teacher in secondary school. Miss Dawn Cox has worked in education for over 20 years. She is a blogger, fascinating blogger. I was reading those last night. A very prolific tweeter and somebody I followed on Twitter for quite a long time. Author uh, for OUP and has just had a bit released called Making Every RE Lesson Count. That came out in January 2021. Dawn, huge warm welcome to our Word Up podcast. Thank you, Helen. Thanks for having me. We're really excited you can join us. Tell us a little bit about you, Dawn, so we get to know who you are. Why did you choose teaching? And then why particularly RE? Why was that your passion? I'm someone that went straight into teaching after my undergraduate degree. I actually um, originally wanted to be an English teacher. Really? Yes, but unfortunately back then you had to teach drama as well and I wasn't a big drama fan I think today it's all more separated out you normally have a drama specialist than you have your English specialist yeah and it put me off a little bit so although I did a couple of weeks work experience in an English department in a local school yeah unfortunately it kind of put me off doing English oh, no. so wasn't, I that wasn't their drama week was it you didn't have to dress no. up <laughs> So my other passion at A-level and degree was studying religion. So I decided that I'd apply for a religious education, PGCE at Cambridge. And yeah, it just went from then. So I went straight into teaching, really. But equally, I loved maths at school. I've, I've taught maths in my career, which I equally love. So the students always say to me when I say that maths is my favourite subject, why I don't teach maths. Mm. But I think RE is very different. I enjoy the conversation. The conversations in maths are probably a little bit more limited than yeah. in RE. Well, I imagine there's a real crossover, actually between RE and English in that you really get to unpick how your students think and what makes them tick and what their interests and passions are and their you know views and sometimes outrageous views on a whole range of topics. Mm. The interesting thing between math and kind of I guess philosophy is this idea of logic and thinking things through logically. Yeah. And I love that. I lo- and that's why I enjoy doing math. And I think actually encouraging the students to think about logic and, and kind of illogical arguments is really, really important. It develops their critical thinking skills. And I think that's one of RE's kind of important aims, really, that they can see what's logical or illogical. Yeah. And that's a fascinating view on something that is a very emotive subject isn't it it's all about our emotion and how we think and feel yeah that's where the controversy sits isn't it so to apply a logic to that that's an interesting dimension yeah and and obviously in RE it can be controversial because of Mm. course if we logically look at belief it doesn't always make sense Mm. to people but that's why RE is important that actually we look at this idea of belief and maybe logically it doesn't always seem to be that way and kind of understanding other people's beliefs is is really important in RE. Yeah 
and such a crucial life skill, isn't it, for us to really fully access the world around us and be a, a good citizen, a good human being who's going to go forth and help the world be better. Yeah, I think that RE kind of promotes this idea of understanding people that are different and the same as me and as you. And yeah, it gives a good foundation for life. Yeah. Well, lots of links there. Really interesting view of what, what RE is all about. Thank you. I've had it been having a good old read of some of your blogs, Dawn. And you wrote one back in November, which I think was a, a kind of vocabulary focused blog. And you said, in my subject at GCSE, we get students to essentially rote learn a set of definitions before we teach them. Because then when we teach the concepts, they already have an instant definition they can pin their understanding to. And I just wanted you to unpick that a bit for us, because I think that that's a really interesting idea and something that a lot of us are really striving to achieve. Mm. I'm into my research and I have actually looked into research about whether we should pre-teach vocabulary before we actually turn, uh, teach content or whether we should do it at the same time. And I actually found research kind of supported both views. So that's helpful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I do. it was good because it kind of supported what I was doing, but also mm. didn't you know, counter another way, I guess. There's no kind of definitive. We give the students a list of keywords for the current topic, 10 keywords with a definition, and it's their homework to learn them. And we support them in that. So we give them kind of look, cover, write, check sheets yeah. that they have to fill in at the beginning. We get them to make little revision cards so they can test themselves. We've set up something called Quizlet Online, which is kind of like a gamification of learning key terms. So we put the support in. We don't just say, learn these. Mm. I then test them on these keywords ahead of me teaching the content, mm. the, the topic that they're about. And I found that actually it develops their confidence because when we get to that, of content they say oh I already know this mm. now they've wrote learned it so of course it's not contextualized it's not an understanding but because they've wrote learned it they can straight away kind of say the definition and then start to realize ah now I understand what that definition means yeah so it's that kind of realization and I think as you said it gives them I'm all into pegs at the moment it gives them something to peg that content onto yeah I've already learned that this is an important word and now I've realized why it's an important word People have been kind of critical of this approach because they think that you should just teach it in context when you're teaching it. But I've actually seen some students utilise the fact that they've learned these words before me teaching them. So I once gave the students a question about angels and we'd only learned about one angel. But in our key words, there was information about another angel, Mikael, and they included the information about Mikael in their answer. Now, I'd not taught them about Mikael, but mm. they'd learned it in the key words. So this student had been able to process herself that actually, right, this question's about angels. I know a key word that's about an angel and I'll include it in there. Yeah. Now, not all students will be able to do that, but actually I've given some students the opportunity to be able to, to do that and kind of process it. So I think that the support we give for some students that might struggle with learning the keyword is enough. And then hopefully when we go through it in class, it helps them even more. And then it just gives a bit of challenge to those that don't need that support. Yeah, that's really useful way, isn't it, of helping make those connections and firing up that schema so that students can make those webs of connections between words. And, and actually, in terms of that cognitive load, when they're really working through new concepts, if they've already got a little peg, like you say, into the meaning behind one of those key terms. Yeah. Just supports that. Absolutely. Supports their understanding and confidence, isn't it? It's about confidence. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, we call our young people digital natives, because they've got that confidence around digital medias and you know when you use that in a way in a classroom they've they've there's a confidence there and it's the same actually isn't it with pre-teaching vocabulary in that way 
Yeah. Do you think that there are particular challenges for you in RE when when it comes to the word gap? And what's that going to look like post-COVID in this new normal? I think one of the challenges that we have is that we have, when we're studying religion, and also things such as philosophy, there's obviously lots of kind of technical language, but also other languages, using other languages. Mm. So, for example, when I'm teaching Hinduism, there's lots of Sanskrit terminology Mm. that I need to teach them. And some people find that quite daunting. As a teacher, as a professional, you know, I always worry, am I pronouncing this the correct way or not? But also, you know, are students going to kind of be negative towards a foreign language, towards a language that they can't speak? But I think mm. you can really actually get them into it. And I gradually teach students words. And, and then I say to them, oh, you can speak a bit of Hebrew now, can't you? And they say, oh, how ca- can we? And I said, yeah, I've taught you mitzvot. And what does it mean? And they'll say, oh, yeah, we know some Hebrew. So it's kind of round the back door a little bit. But they, mm. they really enjoy it. And then they can start using those words when they're in their explanations and in the discussions. And we encourage that. So I think we do have a lot of terminology that can be seen as quite challenging. But I think the students really like it and they kind of step up to the mark, really. Yeah, it's quite empowering, isn't it? Just, you know, to have that additional layer of knowledge and understanding, you know, will hold your head a bit higher because check me out, I know a bit of Hebrew. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it teaching kind of at the heart of, of what these religions are rather than, you know, I could just use the English translations throughout, you know, Hinduism. I could just talk about the soul the whole time and they would still kind of have that understanding. But to use the word Atman, Atman, however you pronounce it, it just gives them that extra insight. And if, you know, if they were to ever be reading about something again, they'd just have that extra knowledge. I think it's really important. Yeah, it's, that's just like teaching etymology, isn't it? If you if you know the history behind a word and you can see its layers of meaning and how it's built up. Oh, I was looking at the other day, the original meaning of the word window was it was a breath door. Oh, wow. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, that's great. And suddenly, I don't know, it just gives you a whole other story, doesn't it, behind a word that that deepens your understanding and ability to comment and make connections and trigger those trigger those word webs within your brain. Yeah, I think with RE as well, we kind of have some quite complex concepts, abstract concepts. And actually, sometimes if we look at the etymology, it can help us to kind of unpick that a little bit more. Yeah. So, you know, things like reincarnation, you know, if we unpick that with the student, then it can help them to understand the actual concept of reincarnation, yeah. rebirth. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, going back to, it gives them the peg when they see that word. Oh, I remember mm. how we unpicked it and then what it means. Mm. And therefore, it helps them to remember. Yeah, I'm sure teaching those roots and prefix and suffix meanings does definitely give you a real lever into a word, doesn't it? Even if it's a new word you haven't come across. Yeah. So do you think within REU, there are certain texts that can really help your students in terms of vocabulary? So when we look at religious texts, for example, easy, simple one, looking in the Bible, I think once they understand some of these words it helps them to understand the context of the text a little bit more and one thing that we do in RE is look at different interpretations of the text for example and and what that means and I think you could easily skim over it so recently I've been teaching my year sevens about the story of kind of creation in Genesis Mm. and by talking about Genesis meaning the beginning Mm. gets them to understand contextually that it's not just kind of the beginning of time but it's the beginning of the Bible it's the beginning of the big story of the Bible and it just kind of gives that extra layer of understanding so if I hadn't taught them that meaning and when we're reading that text they'll just think Genesis that's the name of the book at the start of the Bible without contextually understanding it so Mm. I think when we look at text particularly it gives, if we've kind of taught this vocabulary it really helps out students if we read through some of the religious texts 
to kind of understand it more in depth than the interpretation. So that again, that sort of pre-teaching before we read really helps them with their cognitive load because then they're concentrating on what the text is saying using that vocabulary rather than what does this word mean all the time. Yeah. I'm just thinking about, you know, for families wanting to support their young people as them, especially moving from key stage two to key stage three, what can we do to support families and parents with vocabulary when it comes to RE? Are there certain strategies that you advocate? Do you have certain reading materials or things that pupils can watch? How do, how do we support them there? There's two things I normally say to parents at Parents' Evening. For the GCSE, those keywords, please test them on them. So You've got the list. You don't have to be the expert. Mm. You can just read the, the keyword and then they can read the definition back to you. What sort of keywords do you have? So they're, they're relevant to the topic. So obviously doing Christianity, it will be things like Orthodox, Bible, Jesus, Incarnation, you know, relevant to the, the, yeah. the topic that they're currently doing. So we encourage the parents to kind of get involved with that because actually we know that testing, the retrieval is really, really important. And actually it's kind of better for them to have somebody else ask them. So there's a little bit of pressure there that they've got to do it. Yeah. Whereas it's quite easy if you're learning them by yourself to go, oh yeah, I know that and, and kind of skip. Mm. When actually, if you've got to verbalize it in front of somebody else, it's really important. Another thing I was thinking about the other day, actually, and I've never really thought about how important it is but I often get parents at parents evening saying that they sit and talk about their RE at home Mm. some say at the dinner table not all but they say they have really big kind of debates and discussions about it and I was in a webinar the other day and Tim Oates said about how uh, I don't know if there's research what he was referring to and he said basically students that talk about their work outside of school context do better and I was thinking about actually these students whose parents come and tell me that they've been talking. Yeah. Actually, they are the students that probably are going to do better. And that's because if I've taught them, you know, new vocabulary, new content during the day, and then they go and verbalize it and explain it to somebody else, they're then processing that. Yeah. And if they can then explain it to a parent who doesn't know what transubstantiation is, yeah. well, that's brilliant because straight away they're just they're stopping their own forgetting and they're being able to explain it. And I actually think that if anything, uh, parents can do is to to talk about talk about the learning and I know that's difficult because I know that some children get home and parents say what did you learn today and they say oh nothing yeah nothing that's nothing <laughs> but actually where possible if, if, they, if they can that would be brilliant and yeah I was just wondering you know how important that is for the students to be able to then have a discussion about their learning and and how that might impact their vocabulary you know around Christmas time and you you go to the shops and there's all those you know dinner party tabley game things yeah. or there's a little box you can pull out a stick and it's got you know a big question yeah it, we, we could almost do with that you know per subject area couldn't we that you know there's a little re box or there's a year seven autumn term you know table talk chat at home big questions yeah I can yeah I think I think there's such a synergy isn't there between that you know that triangle is so crucial between the school the home and the and the child to really embed learning and make make it of value mm. in every sphere but yeah how do you how do you send your words home do you send emails do you send booklets do you ask the kids to share their books yes we've got kind of sheets that we make for each religion each kind of topic so they have a physical copy mm. and then we have electronic copies so we use kind of our online homework system so I attach copies of that as well so there's electronic and then in the old days, when we had parents' evenings where we actually saw people uh, <laughs> hand parents' copy and say, oh, have you seen this? Yeah. Oh, this is their keyword. Please help them out. Yeah. And I have to say, it really does make a difference. Where students have struggled, and I've 
specifically said to a, a supportive parent, to be fair, you know, they're struggling with the keywords. Can you test them on them? The difference in their keyword testing class was huge. Yeah. It's huge when they have that support from home. But we know that not all students can have that. Mm. But it really does make a difference. Well, I'm off to try and think how we can do some little Oracy Christmassy games for, <laughs> for subject areas. I think that would be really interesting. I think that's a new a new idea. There you go. Let's do that, Dawn. Yeah. <laughs> You know the blog I referred to earlier where we were talking about rote learning Mm. definitions. You brilliantly finished the blog with a set of questions for teachers, which, you know, I often set questions because (laughs) they're ones I can't answer. I'm thinking, I don't know. Let's see what everyone else thinks. Absolutely. So I'm going to pose one of those questions to you because I think this is a really vital area. Certainly, you know, it was something that really used to come out quite a lot when I was on inspection or or working with Academy Trusts about equality of provision. And just because so-and-so is in Mr. Jones's class or Miss Taylor, class you know it shouldn't alter the landscape of their curriculum climate you know Mm. quality of provision and and one of the questions you posed was how do we ensure that all colleagues within the subject area use the same definitions and consider effective processes for introducing them Mm. and I just wondered now since November 2020 you've had a minute to think about that maybe what what your take on that might be it's really difficult Mm. as a head of department I think we should have a real kind of balance between saying what we, we want kind of to happen in RE and autonomy as, a, as an individual teacher. Mm. And I believe that as a head of department, I should be setting what we want the students to know, but a teacher should decide how. Mm. So the pedagogy is up to, up to them as long as the, the children are learning mm. what we've agreed. So we have what I call schemes of knowledge. So people kind of call things schemes of work, schemes of learning, and I've just called it schemes of knowledge because it's literally a list of our schemes of what we want the students to know. And that includes the keywords with the definition of what we want them to learn. So they're there as a kind of centralised source. This is the word, this is the meaning. Mm. And obviously it's helped at GCSE because we have these keyword sheets and all colleagues would use that. It's the same set of keywords no matter whose class you're in because we do the same testing on them, even if a student happen to swap class it would be the same routine so it's a little bit of we teach the same but the kind of in between bits are up to the teacher but I think there are some things like that that I think are really important that we we need to do in a similar way I think that's a really good way of describing it because you're right we are so individual aren't we and the passion we have for teaching is because that's what we believe this is how this is how I teach and get the best from my students and that might not look like somebody else Mm. and that's okay you're right. So long as we're all achieving the same, you know, what as in the outcome. It's a bit like the very great and sadly late Ken Robinson talking about the Michelin star guide. So a Michelin star for a restaurant just sets the standard and says how you get there's up to you. Mm. But this is what we expect, as opposed to the McDonald's version where it's like, right, you've got to have X, Y and Z in the right order and one blob yeah. of this and yeah. 0.2 grams of that. And Yeah, as long as students are achieving, you know, there might be things that we kind of agree are, are great ways of teaching but you know this is why we, we don't want to be robots otherwise you know why would we come into teaching although there are some people that are happy with that in some schools um, I think just having a bit of individuality in teaching is important absolutely so in your dream your dream RE classroom what would we see what's going on <laughs> I'm a traditional <laughs> teacher unfortunately no not unfortunately there's well, a lot of I, I think for that my my teaching sounds so boring <laughs> My teaching sounds really boring because actually it's a lot of kind of quizzing, testing, whatever you want to call it for the students to help them to recall. Yeah. Then there's input and that input is usually 
me talking or a different source of information, usually a video, mm. a clip, such like. But the thing that makes it kind of good RE is the fact that we then talk about it. So I've presented them with whatever information it is, whatever content, concept that it is, and their brains start whirring and they start thinking mm. and then the questions start coming. And it's the questions that start generating that kind of additional knowledge that makes the links across, that kind of gives opinions and starts unpicking what I've actually said. And that that's what makes it. That's the bit that I can't plan. I can't plan for the questions that students are going to ask and how they're going to kind of see the information that I've given to them but that's what makes the difference I think and it's dealing with those questions in in a way that moves their thinking on and allows them all to contribute if they want to yeah and I think that's the difference between them just watching a video and me being there is that I've got the expertise hopefully in most cases to be able to respond to be able to correct any misunderstandings and to kind of move their thinking on and I think that's where I think ideally RE should be yeah and isn't that great? I mean, I just think that's that is one of the best bits is that tennis game of conversation in a classroom where you can see pennies dropping and lights switching on as as young people really get the concept that you're exploring. Yeah, absolutely. How do you craft those talk situations? <laughs> do you start small with just pairs? Do you start with sort of groups or is it whole class? Again, I'm quite traditional. <laughs> It tends to be kind of whole class and, and if individuals want to ask questions, then they do. I need to kind of work on, I guess, my friend is a great advocate of think, pair, share, mm. and then then discuss as a class. I've not really nailed that. I need to probably do that. But um, at the moment, I generally just, I think it's all about relationships and that the students feel comfortable to ask me any question about anything obviously relevant to the topic. I think there are some students that won't ever speak or ask. And I think I haven't personally got a problem with that because if, if they don't want to talk in class, I'm not going to make them talk in class. Mm. I think, yeah. Do they have an opportunity to contribute in a written way? Some lessons often have like, you know, that sort of secret post box of questions or things they might want to have I don't tend to do that, but when they do their written work, obviously I could then mm. see any misconceptions and it generally doesn't tend to happen even through those that haven't kind of asked more questions. So yeah, I'm quite traditional in that it's kind of whole class because on the whole, if, if they've got something to say, it's probably going to be quite interesting to kind of everyone else to hear. And they seem to be all right with it, but it's about relationships. And I think they feel comfortable that they can ask the questions about the topic without either feeling foolish or, or that they're asking a question that everybody else understands. I think once you've established that and they're comfortable, I think most students are okay with it. Yeah. And do you listen to, you know, good orators giving talks? I don't know, I'm thinking about Malala Yousaf or Emma Watson or somebody who might be talking about a particular topic area that you're focusing on at that time, but but is a good orator and sort of models that good talk. We, yeah, we do look at, um, we do use different resources with the students and we do look at, we look at, at the text of them as well. So mm. for example, Mohammed's final speech, obviously we've not got a video clip of it, but we do <laughs> look at text and, and things like that. So yeah, we do that. Cool. There we go. We do do that. <laughs> <laughs> so just to finish off then, Dawn, thank you. Let's just do a few quick fire teachery kind of questions. So okay. what are you reading at the minute? At the minute, I am reading something called 
the Authenticity Project by Claire Pooley. I've only just started it, so I can't really comment on it, to be honest with you. But yeah, kind of fiction. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. I tend to read geeky stuff as well, education stuff. So like I'm reading a paper about teaching and that sort of thing as well. Immersed in our profession. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Do you listen to podcasts? Yes, I do. Go on, give us a recommendation. There are kind of RE focused. There's a couple at the moment that are fairly new, actually. The RE podcast. Yeah. Oh, I can't remember her name. I apologise. That's been really interesting. She's been interviewing kind of a, a real variety, actually. It's not it's not just about RE teaching. It's actually for students as well of people that different faith, no faith, and yeah, some of the key issues. And then a teacher one, AJ Smith. He's been doing kind of like a teacher podcast, although it's kind of, I think he calls it curriculum, powerful curriculum, but mm. actually um, he's been looking at Tamari as well. But then there's kind of general education ones. I think they're really great for when you want to do some walking or some running and you can put a podcast yeah. on and just kind of have a listen to them without having to hold a book, really. Yeah, I agree. Chopping an onion. I, that's, I often do it when I'm cooking. <laughs> <laughs> often on my own in the kitchen, just listening away. What about advice for an NQT? What, any advice? Any advice. The thing I've been thinking about at the moment is you're an expert in your subject and the children in front of you probably aren't. Think carefully about how you're going to kind of transmit that knowledge over to those students because you have got the knowledge and you probably don't realise how you've got that knowledge. You've got to somehow unpick all your expertise and all your knowledge. So those students in front of you, no matter what their age are, could understand at their level and I think so many people if we if we'd been told that from the beginning Mm. that would have kind of really helped us because I wrote a blog recently called the curse of knowledge and we we got where we are because we've done a degree and and we've done our teacher training we need to kind of reverse that and unpick where we got all of our knowledge from and be able to teach that and and the complexity of it to our students so I think that's really important for NQTs to remember. Yeah that's a really lovely visual way of describing it. Do you know, I saw, uh, we've just had Easter weekend, and I saw a, a video clip of an, a lovely big chocolate Easter egg being smashed. <laughs> and then it all came back together. And I'm just reminded of that when you say that, actually, it's right. You know, all those fragments of knowledge mm. that come to form the practitioner that we are, how did we get there and to unpick that? That's great advice for an NQT. Thanks. There you go. That's the next blog. That's the next book, Dawn. Yeah. (laughs) Dawn, it's been fabulous to talk to you. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thanks, Helen. It's been great. Brilliant. Thanks, Dawn. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Word Up podcast from Oxford Education. To receive bonus material relevant to the discussion, please visit www.oup.com slash education slash podcasts.